Hi, welcome to Grace and Peace Church Online. I'm Carissa May, the Associate Pastor. Glad you're here with us today. And if you want any information about upcoming services, lawn meetings, or Christmas Eve, check us out at graceandpeacechurch.org. So this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and so far this season, we have considered the themes of hope, remembered in the prophet's candle, peace, that's Bethlehem's candle, and joy, that's the shepherd's candle, which brings us to today and to the greatest of all of the characteristics of Christ and Christ following, and that is love, divine, exemplary love. Now, as you continue your home devotions this week in uh, this booklet that Nate probably dropped off to you, and if you don't have one, message us if you want to jump in on that and get in on that this week. So you'll notice there that right away when love is taught through a biblical lens, it's not romantic, it's not shallow or inanimate like I love grilled cheese, and it's not selfish, and there's a component of discipline. So biblical love is not romantic, but it is utterly compassionate. And it's not exclusive, it's actually plural and universal, and for that reason, kind of subversive. It's written that we don't know the height or depth or breadth of God's love, and I'm certain that we collectively have underestimated God's capacity to love his whole creation. But maybe today, will broaden our understanding of God's character and as a result, will open up our own floodgates a little bit more. So biblical love also isn't shallow. Instead, it's rooted deeply in God's character. It emanates from his being. Love flows from God. God is love. Look at this from 1 John. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So God is love at his divine core. And we are created in love and with the capacity to reflect the same. In Christ's incarnation, his birth and life was a visible, tangible act of great love foretold and then realized for the sake of the whole world. For the sake of humanity, the very life of Christ was a rescue mission. Now you've probably heard this from the Gospel of John. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to be its judge, but to be its savior. Faith in Christ then, which means us actively, intentionally living for Christ. Faith like that should compel us to be as forward-thinking as the Lord, concerned not with judgment, but with love, liberally applied like a Jackson Pollock, unplugged, but with a fat brush and just paint, love, just scattered willy-nilly without a care for where it lands, but with great concern that everything is touched by it, everything is covered by it. That is a Jackson Pollock painting. And if you're on the podcast, man, just look it up. There's just paint everywhere. Now, the death of Jesus was also absolutely a sacrifice of love. Look at this from 1 John again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, Christ's return also 
which we anticipate in Advent, will also be an act of love. The culmination of God's work, the whole human project and all of creation with us will experience reconciliation and renewal. And God in Christ will reign in love over all creation. The time will come when everyone who has returned the love of God will be called to him. And when anyone who rejected or rejects the love of God will be set aside apart from him. Judgment acknowledges our response to God's grace. Our hearts are known to him, maybe more than we know ourselves, and justice will prevail. Now, speaking about our hearts, if we don't really know our hearts before God or what God might be looking at, consider this. Now, this is Jesus speaking. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And this, if you love me, obey my commandments. So if you're uncertain about your heart towards Christ, you can be certain of this. Your actions will find you out. So maybe ask yourself a few questions. To what extent do you actively love the Lord and follow his commands? To what depth does your love for others expose your foundation in Christ? He is the author of love and by him we're compelled to love, but do we do that? Who have you fed? Who have you clothed? Who have you cared for? Who have you visited? When Christ sent you to affect another person, did you go for him for his sake, for their sake, as a conduit of his love to extend his mission? Do you approach the world with compassion? Like when you see something heartbreaking, do you weep like Christ did over Jerusalem, but then get up and get to work as an agent of change? Do you work for justice and act with mercy and regard yourself with humility? And about humility, does it make sense that your part, as important as it is, is small on a cosmic scale? Like, it's small to scale, but it's 100% vital to your relationship toward God, and it fully indicates your response to Him as being receptive and reflective of His love, or not. And then the last question is this, if you love Him, do you obey his tightly defined call to love? Do you receive it and extend it to others? And I think that when we ask our questions of these, um, these questions of ourselves, they refer us back to Christ, who is the arbiter of real love, back to him as an example of what love looks like. And I think that's good. If we're gonna imitate him, we, it's helpful to have a concrete image of what's expected and what's acceptable. So now I wanna get concrete too. I wanna to grab a concise, memorable bit of scripture that paints a picture of love that I think we can imagine and draw from at any moment when we need inspiration or courage or comfort or assurance. And for that, I wanna look at the 23rd Psalm. Now Psalm 23 might be familiar to you. And if it's ever been a source of comfort, then all the better. 
This song or poem was written by David who preceded Christ by a thousand years. David, as you may know, had a pretty rough entrance toward kingship in the days of Saul. He had a sometimes ugly and bloody reign, but thankfully, he also proved the redeeming grace and the ability of God to use absolutely anybody. David also had kind of a genius for expressing praise and fear and confessions, just a whole gamut of emotions, but also for articulating the humanity of God long before his incarnation in Christ. So in that way, I see the psalm as both real to David and deeply prophetic of the love of God that would later be enfleshed in Christ in ways that are remarkably parallel to these passages. So listen to this, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So let's take this apart and really look at it. The Lord is my shepherd. Way before the coming of Christ, David identifies with God as his shepherd. And the fact that David was a shepherd himself shouldn't be lost on us here. David knows, he fully understands the multifaceted life of a shepherd. So maybe first and foremost, a shepherd is a watchman. They constantly guard the flock against the enemy and against outside influences. A shepherd is known by their voice and the voice guides the herd. It announces danger and it calls the herd home into safety. And a shepherd keeps the flock intact. A shepherd knows their own sheep, they attend to the herd, and they seek the lost. And shepherds protect. They stand between the flock and its enemies and they mitigate dangers. A shepherd provides for the herd, they provide sustenance, and they lead the lambs to water and to shelter. And they attend to wounds. They bind the hurt and carry the broken ones, even on their shoulders. So the Lord is my shepherd, says David. And a thousand years later, Jesus explains it to the people listening to him. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. As a shepherd, Jesus was preparing even then to lay down his life, protecting the whole herd of humanity from the pain of death. And remember, that act would be the ultimate expression of selfless, godly love. So with that, Jesus the Good Shepherd shapes us in two ways, to be his beloved sheep and to become loving shepherds who follow his example. A Christ-like love, a shepherd's love, is sacrificial, but it's not self-destructive. Please hear that. 
Jesus had a particular mission and a divine calling that's never meant to be replicated. But we can take comfort in love's expression in Christ. And we can enact that which our humanity can bear. We can love selflessly and well, not losing ourselves, but becoming more deeply, more fully ourselves as we allow Christ to love others through us in very practical ways. Without harm to ourselves or our psyches, we can stand guard for others and call out to dangers and call people safely home. Without losing ourselves, we can go with God to tend his sheep and to seek the lost. With no great risk to our well-being, we can mitigate the discomfort of the less fortunate. It costs us nothing to see others, to listen to them, to sit with them, to experience true compassion. But yes, we can also go out on a limb for others and discernment and prayer should inform that. Shepherds were not foolish. They were well-versed in risk and dangers. They were familiar with the terrain. They had reasonable expectations concerning outcomes and they went with the tools fitted to their task. We should make a mental note of that for how we should live this whole life out. So Christ is the good shepherd and we who respond to his voice belong to him. But also this, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. You may have heard it this way, beside the still waters. I read this as a picture of Shalom. And Nate talked about this when he taught about peace a couple weeks ago. We can think of Shalom as personally experiencing the universal peace of God. And it's made known to us in our sense of spiritual safety, in our assurance, in the stillness of our heart and mind as we stand before God. A shepherd affects that kind of rest and refreshment in their sheep. Now in the same way, this state of being is realized in Jesus who said it this way. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us to take our rest in him and we also find that life-giving elixir for our souls. Listen to this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the source of our refreshment. But all is not always well in the world or in our souls, in it. Like life is bananas sometimes or worse. And so David's prayer also addresses that. Even when I walk through the darkest hour, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. Now take a look at this image of John Collier's Christ the Good Shepherd Monument. Now for the podcast, I'm just going to say, look it up because it's pretty golden. But there's a couple things I like about this piece. First, it doesn't downplay the danger that the sheep or their shepherds face. Like this art reflects the imminent and the possibility of intermittent danger. And second, 
Notice that the shepherd doesn't confront the danger alone. One shepherd has taken the lead, but the others take up arms with him. And they're all fit for battle with the tools of their trade, and they're actively closely following the first among them. And we can see that the rod and the staff they carry are at hand, ready to be used to defend the sheep. And finally, notice the sheep. The sheep remains closest to the leading shepherd. I think there's excellent counsel to be taken in that. Regardless of who you affiliate in the faith, fix your eyes on Jesus and remain at his side. Let his voice alone be the one that ultimately speaks to your heart. Resist the temptation to follow human personalities. Jesus has entrusted his word to servants and he's compelled shepherds to guard his flock and carry out his mission. But the voice of the Lord should supersede all others and lambs should never be diverted from closely following the path that Jesus set for them. So now at that point in David's psalm, he shifts from this pastoral metaphor to hospitality. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. So now still acknowledging these difficulties that can plague human existence, David nevertheless sees here that the Lord is in control and that he regards our enemies in ways that we might not easily understand. Justice belongs to the Lord, and in the meantime, we are invited guests in his home and afforded his protection as its overseer. He will meet our needs. He is the source of abundance. It is an honor to sit at his table, and it's a blessing to receive from his goodness. Now, David knew these table manners, which were expected of a king. He was well acquainted with the customs of hospitality. He knew the power of a king to invite or to deny access to the table. So notice in his prayer, he acknowledges the grace that's abounding at God's table. So now later in the days of Christ, that generous hospitality was also enacted in him. At Christ's last Passover celebration, we would think of that as the, the Last Supper, we see the abundance of his table where he offers his whole self and his invitation is offered to many. Look at this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is so much that's significant about this passage and its relationship to David's prayer. And first is the depiction of the table itself, hosted by a king. And this time the king is Jesus and the company is his disciples and he's in the presence of his enemy, Judas. Every guest, is enjoying rest and protection and proximity to the king. And then in this new context, Jesus mentions those outside of the meeting room, probably future enemies of the disciples, but they're also his future invited guests. You see, we don't dictate Christ's guest list. And if that confounds us, that tells us we probably need to expand our godly vision. And then next we hear that Christ's table 
offers the abundance of the overflowing cup, which David referred to. The meal, that is the offer of Christ, fulfills every need alluded to in the psalm. In Christ through baptism, we also are anointed and we can be assured by that, that we belong in his care. He offered us a seat at his table and it's ours to occupy. Now finally, the table set by Christ is also a table of remembrance. The meal is one in which we recall the fact that Christ was just days away from walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Days from laying down his life for his brothers and sisters. A time when he would seek comfort from his friends and from his father. So then David's prayer comes to a close with these words. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. And we can read that part with hindsight, knowing that Jesus Christ went to the cross certain that the goodness and unfailing love of God his Father would pursue him, and that in rising from death in the grave, he himself would live and reign at the right hand of God forever. And because Christ did, because he gave his whole life without reservation, we do know that love is exactly what he said it is. And so now we light this fourth candle of Advent and we know its meaning. This candle will help to tell the love story that is Jesus. And like Jesus, this candle will give off a light that drives back the shadows. It will pour itself out in physical ways every time we engage it. And it will be a beacon to everyone to come to the table. A place of comfort and rest where we remember that we are loved divinely and that we have the capacity to love beyond ourselves and that we are infilled with the spirit from which love flows and that we're commanded to do so. Love and obedience are connected. That was demonstrated in Christ and that's his call on our lives. And so to address that imperative, I wanna end with a prayer that I hope will encourage us toward Christ-likeness. I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts through faith. I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love so that you, together with all God's people, may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is Christ's love. Yes, may you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature of God. Grace and peace. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of each day. Amen.